Well, greetings, y'all. It's uh, McCowan. It's Shannon on oh, uh, Sirius XM and on the podcast. Tennis talk today, for the most part. Uh, this was something that um, I think much of the country was absorbed in over the last couple of weeks, the U.S. Open. And I, I, I mean, tennis fans are interested in the U.S. Open. It's a major, after all. It, uh, you know, it, it concludes over Labor Day weekend. And um, mm -hmm. so it always has attention. But clearly, it, we were more attentive. At least I was more attentive because of the uh, Canadians and their success and watched virtually every match that uh, Fernandez and uh, Oje Aliassim had. I assume you uh -huh. did too. Yeah, and I think the momentum of the of the as they would call the fortnight, the two weeks. I I would suggest uh, that a lot of Canadians did the same. Uh, I, I think that uh, it it piqued their interest early on. Uh, Ali Asim is probably a little better known than Fernandez was, but when she started to win, and particularly after she beat Osaka, uh, and, uh, the, you know, one of the biggest names in the sport. And I think people started to realize, oh, I better watch. I better be involved. And then she went on to defeat two more seeded players. And that really created a lot, as much interest, I think, than anything else. And then Oje Alassim helped that as well. But I, I think there were a ton of Canadians uh, that got on the, on the bandwagon uh, after uh, Leila beat uh, Naomi Osaka. Uh, I must tell you only that I'm, I'm, I'm not sure they call it the fortnight in New York. They do in London no, with Wimbledon. But, but. but I tell you what, if you listen to uh, Emma Raducanu's uh, uh, post-match speech, she said she had a great time at the fortnight in New York. So then I, wow. felt, I felt liberty to use it. So, okay. By the way, did you, did you see her? I mean, what a, what a change for someone. 18 years old, you know, comes as a qualifier, wins the tournament. Last night, she was at the New York Metropolitan Gala, <laughs> dressed to the nines in Chanel. I mean, can you imagine the whirlwind that she has been gone through since winning on Saturday afternoon? Yeah, not a whole lot of preparation for uh, <laughs> a couple of events like that, I guess, huh? No, just, she, looked pretty, she looked pretty darn good, too. Just threw her in the pond and hoped she could swim. Yeah, and two and a um, half million dollars later. Yeah, well, we're going to talk about it uh, today. Uh, what what this meant and how this happened is this. I don't want to use the word fluke because nothing is a fluke, uh, really, in sport. But the fact that you had these two young people emerge as um, as the stars of the show, while two other almost equally young players um, advanced into the, uh, um, into the third and fourth rounds, I think, respectively. Uh, this, was, this was the best major championship I think Canada has ever had in terms of tennis. It's certainly the best overall that I can remember. Mm -hmm. And um, the guy at the head of the ship is uh, Michael Downey, our friend the president CEO of Tennis Canada, and he will join us today. And we'll continue after these messages. It's McCowan, it's uh, Shannon on the program. Um, our guest today, Michael Downey, is the uh, president CEO of Tennis Canada. He is a, a, 
been a guest with us on numerous occasions, both on the radio and well now on the podcast, I guess for the first time. And Downey abandoned his, uh, his native country and uh, took himself over to Britain to try and fix their tennis program. And um, I don't know whether you can, you take any credit for what Emma uh, accomplished? Did you, did you, did you know her when you were, uh, when you were running the British uh, uh, tennis fleet? Um, I didn't know her, uh, Bob, but I had hired a guy named Peter Keene to come in as an interim high performance director. And uh, Peter actually started something called a PSP program. It was like some kind of subsidy for young players. I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but she was an entry. Emma was an entry into the PSP program. So credit really to Peter for starting that program back in you know, 2016, 17, when I was there, but I can't really take credit for it. I knew of her, but that was about as far as the relationship goes. Did you know she had been born in Toronto, in Toronto or in Canada? Didn't actually. Yeah, it was a great uh, side story from the U.S. Open that she uh, yeah. was born in Toronto and spent her two uh, first two years in our great city. Well, even on her Twitter account, she still acknowledges the cities that she's lived in, and Toronto being one of them. So that's kind. Of, it is kind of cool. And you did so. There, there was no subterfuge after the match and try to recruit her to become a Canadian again, Michael. <laughs> oh. Oh, not at all. I, I think she's been in Britain too long, actually. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's talk in general, first of all. Um, and I made mention of this off the top. It is extraordinary. What we saw at the U.S. Open was extraordinary. It was something I, I don't remember ever seeing in, in Canadian tennis. It's not a question of, of a, you know, the fact that a Canadian didn't win a, a major. You had... Um, uh, an 18, then 19 year old, make it to the final. You had a 21 year old, make it to the semifinal. Um, and Drescu played well for a period of time and then got hurt. Uh, Shapovalov got through a round or two. Uh, we've never seen this. Have we Michael? Um, not really. Um, you know, in the last few years, we, the, the Canadian, the, the Canada has had some decent results yeah. at the slam. So, you know, Bob, I think the thing we're starting to realize is the old days of just being happy that Canadians make the main draw and maybe hang around for one match are gone. And they, the players don't believe it either. Like none of them show up thinking they're only going to last around. They, they really do believe they can turn the corner on the second week. And that's what players look for. Success to them is turning the corner onto the second week of a grand slam. And that's what we saw this week. And if I may say, you forgot Gabby Dabrowski, mm -hmm. who actually made the semifinal in, in women's doubles and had her, her, her partner got injured and had to pull out, pull out. Yeah. So why is this happening, Michael? I mean, why are, why are, are we going to look back and call the, this the golden era of Canadian tennis and why is it happening now? Uh, I think it's happening partly because, um, we kind of reoriented our whole approach to high performance in around 2007. And we invested in the first ever national tennis center in Montreal, which is goal was to kind of bring all the best young kids together and train them kind of in a pack mentality in a pro environment and never had that before. And we also set up a regional program in Toronto and Vancouver. Now I say that, 
is I don't think that the programs that I've just talked about can take full credit for this. They can take some credit because Milos entered in and Jeannie entered in, Felix was there, and there's no doubt that those early development and successes of Milos and Jeannie made a difference. And that's the real reason. So let me finish my point is that I think two things have really happened out of kind of that system build. One, the country got results very early with Milos and Jeannie, and that gave these kids the belief that if they put in the time, they get good coaching, they can actually make it. Because I don't think it, it's been decades since Canadian players actually really believed they could succeed in singles. I'll keep doubles out of it in singles. And I think the other thing that's a key reason for why this is happening is that the bar is just being raised. So I think maybe one of the things that we did well was by starting a national tennis center and the regional programs and getting some early results. It just raised the bar in the country for all those academies, those private coaches, players that may not be in the system, that there's a new norm now. And I think it just raised the, the level of excellence that maybe we didn't have back in the, in the 90s and 80s. Would you say that prior to this new program, most successful Canadian tennis players, the few that there were, operated as individuals within their own kind of fiefdom? And now all of a sudden, there's a little bit of infrastructure to help support them. Bob, you're totally right. Like if you go back prior to the National Tennis Center opening in 2007 and eight, our budgets were next to nothing right. and we couldn't afford to help many players. And we were spraying money around a little, a little bit of money around too, too widely. So you are totally right. Like Daniel Nestor would say he didn't get much support from the Federation. Uh, and, and quite frankly, the Federation wasn't in a position where they can actually help them. So, you know, another thing that really happened here that benefited us is we, you know, in credit to Stacey Allister and a guy named Derek Strang, you know, they were the heavy lifters to get the Rexall Center built in Toronto, which is now the Aviva Center. And these two centers have been able to actually generate way more revenues out of these two tournaments. And we've also been able to get way more revenue out of ATP media because men's tennis has gone through kind of the golden years with Rafa and Roger and Novak. So it meant there was actually more money available at the same time we were opening the National Tennis Center and the regional program. So we could afford to do more things. Um, like one of the things that we didn't do well before we had money, but it, in parallel with setting up the National Tennis Center, we started a bunch of challenger events across the country. These are like entry level pro events where Canadians can get wild cards to earn points. And mm -hmm. we were lucky enough to get some funding from National Bank for those. But if you look at the last decade, many Canadians have actually won those events. And that makes that helps them get their rankings up. Like I'll, I'll end on this point. You know, Dennis, everyone thinks Dennis's breakthrough was in Montreal in 2007 when he got to the, I think the semifinals and he beat Rafa and then he was rising up after that. He actually won the Drummondville Challenger in March that year. So that was actually the point that he really got into kick drive. And then he layered it into other 
great results at the Rogers Cup in the U.S. Open that year. But you talk about Shap- a guy like Shapovalov uh, and what he has done. How, how, what do we not see uh, in his development that you guys do, that Tennis Canada does? Oh, well, his mother, if I've got your question right, John, Tessa is being instrumental in his development. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I've said this publicly, there's no one way to help develop a, uh, a star player. Like, you know, we've got a system and that's great, but that doesn't mean you can't develop players outside the system. And I think Tessa is an example of that where she was really his head coach through all the development years. He went on tours with us and we paid for those tours and there were other benefits we gave him like wild cards. But really, we didn't give him financial support until he was about 17 years of age. Had made it. He had won junior Wimbledon. And that's when we put him on a three-year transition program where we paid for a lot of his development needs. But he wasn't necessarily at our NTC. He was outside of that. That's okay. That's okay. Um, I recall the days when players like Carling Bassett would come on the international scene. And she was a young lady, if I'm not mistaken, Michael, she wound up going to Volatari's Academy in Florida and came from a wealthy family who could afford to send her down there and go through that process. Because that was that that was not inexpensive. Yep. And so I'm wondering, is that still part of the system? Or with the development of Tennis Canada and your influence, and contributions to the development of these players. Are there coaches here now in the system for you guys or with you guys that you can provide to them? Um, or are they still sort of on their own to develop that, that strategy as 12, 14, 16 year olds? Uh, Bob, a little bit of both. Um, I think, you know, we've kind of evolved our thinking. You know, I think initially, if I can answer your question this way, I think initially when we set up the National Tennis Center, there was kind of this belief that if we build it, they will come and that everybody good should come. Okay. And that's where we started. And quite frankly, we probably had to start there because why would you actually build something if you weren't trying to get the best kids there? I think what we've evolved to is realizing there's no one way path that you can go, if you're good, you can go through our system and you can go into Montreal when you're like 15 years of age and we'll fully support you, give you a transition if you get the results. But there's gonna be hybrids of that. And Florida is one of those hybrids. So again, an example I'll give is young Layla Annie Fernandez. She's been a bit of a hybrid. So when she was, and I'm guessing on the years, but when she was, 15 and kind of 16, we made the Montreal Center always available to her. And we actually did underwrite some coaching for her, okay? And the family lived in Montreal at that time. And she went on tours, we paid for, we gave her a little bit of grant funding. But her father and mother made a decision. They wanted to move to Florida. I think there was a family reason the mother's job kind of drove that. And I also think that they just thought They wanted to do it down there, probably in a good weather situation. So what we did is we put her on kind of a two-year transition program to pros where we actually gave her some funding, which was largely funding for the father to be the coach or the father to hire a coach that helps him. 
That's just a hybrid example, but we can't afford to do that with every kid. So at the end of the day, she had to hit certain standards where we said, she's worthy of this incremental funding. And if you recall, she actually had won Roland Garros junior singles title when she was 17. That made her totally worthy of incremental funding that she's got in the last couple of years. Now, however, because of the big payday on Sunday, you know, we'll be hard pressed to say, well, you just made 1.25 million US. You know, should we be giving you more funding? Probably not. But what we'll do is we'll give her some services like centralized analytics and things like that, that we can get uh, better than she can as an independent contractor. Before, before we, issues, sorry, John, go ahead. I was going to say, no, I was just, before we get into talking about the tournament and, and, and the momentum that she created and that uh, Felix created, um, the, the thing that I always wonder about is, is how, how do you, as a group, how do you identify the kids? When, when does that start? I mean, and, and who, get, who gets credit within your system for that? Yeah, okay. So, and you know, this is always part of the problem. And I don't know if tennis is unique. It's always this who gets credit where we try to just say we're a facilitator, but I even have issues with our own coaches because sometimes they can't get out of their own way. You know, mm -hmm. it's not about us. If the kid does well, who cares who the coach was? Um, you know, Bob, I mean, John, we're in a situation where um, we have a pipeline program and we start, we have, there's about 40 private academies across the country. We call them tennis development centers, TDCs. And they largely work with kids in that young age and they get grant funding for us. And they have to do certain things to get that kind of grant funding. You know, it's not hundreds of thousands of dollars, but they get subsidies. So they can actually give some benefits to the best kids with those out those kids having to pay hourly rates and things like that. So we do a TDC program. And then we also have regional programs in Vancouver, uh, Montreal and Toronto, where when the kids are a little older, they can go into that program, which is like a regional program. Okay. And we pay for everything in that program. But you're probably, if I'm guessing, talking about no more than 30 kids, mm -hmm. 40 kids across the country that are in those three regional programs at any one time. You have to remember, and it was a stat I gave an interview last week that, that actually it was, I think it was Christopher Clary with the New York Times, and he was a bit shocked when I said to him, there are only 4,000 kids in this country under 18 years of age who compete at least six times a year, only eight, 4,000. That's the pipeline. So mm -hmm. when you look at the Felix is coming through, the Dennis is coming through, the Bianca is coming through, right now there's only 4,000 kids that are what we'll call in this kind of pro uh, performance pathway. Most of them won't go too far. Many will go to the NCA and scholarship. But we need a really good conversion if you're only talking 4,000 kids. And our fundamental but, problem is we don't have enough year-round courts right. so these kids can compete more. Well, That's that is exactly, problem. that leads me to the question I was going to ask, and, and, and that is this. What we, this evolution that we've seen, especially in the majors over the last few years, you know, they can cover the roof in Australia, they can cover the roof at Wimbledon, they can 
close things off at the U.S. Open, at least on, well, one or two courts. On Ash, for sure. Yeah. Um, is that an important next step for you? Um, or is that relatively insignificant given that we'd essentially be talking about one court in Toronto and maybe, I don't know how you could cover uh, yeah. Jerry Park, but, but it would be a lot more difficult. But yeah, Bob, um, I flip it. I think you're talking about the covered court at the highest level, the two tournaments. Well, I we am. Need more, we need year-round courts across the country, like your, your normal tennis club, where these kids at a young age can actually play and practice all year round, and we can set up competitions. So mm. you know, one of the programs that we've been working on for the last couple of years is lobbying municipalities of over 50,000 size if they don't have accessible covered courts, year-round courts, how do we get them into the game? Because one of the advantages of tennis is that you can put a bubble, you know, those ugly yeah, bubbles. I was just going to mention put a it. bubble yep. over outdoor park courts for a million to $2 million, okay? Like you're not talking hockey arena type costs. And if you get a good operator in there, they can actually make a profit, okay? You, you rent the court for 20 bucks an hour type of thing. So if you've got four players, it's five bucks an hour for four doubles players. It's not, it's not, it's still accessible. So we're spending a lot of time right now working with municipalities to try to take advantage of this hype and this growth in the sport. So they'll invest in recreational covered courts. Like we've got a program now with some subsidies from an old, uh, uh, employer of yours where we can actually put some seed money into some of these projects. This to me <laughs> is one of the most important things Tennis Canada can do because it has to be done centrally. So we are actually out working with probably about 20 municipalities right now. They're all at various stages because you're talking about government of getting bubbles in. Like we're close to announcing a project in Ancaster, which is, you know, as you know, just outside of Hamilton. Yeah. And and we'll promote the hell out of that when that gets announced, because there'll be other municipalities, Thunder Bay's looking at it, Kingston's looking at it. You know, we need to get more of these so these kids can actually play year round and we can get more competitions year round. I can also tell you one other thing that's important on the competitions. We've got to get the tennis world out of traditional, traditional tennis matches. And what I mean is we need shorter matches like fast four and things like that. So these kids can have bigger draws in their competitions. So yeah. you can have more matches because they're shorter over a weekend. So the draw sizes can be bigger. So more kids can actually compete. So we need to implement these kind of changes so more kids can actually compete. We can get that 4,000 number up. You know, you, you talk about that. The, the one sport that has really done this and we have noticed the difference and that is soccer. I mean, the CSA... There are so many, if you drive around cities, there are so many 12-month-a-year soccer academies and bubbles now uh, that it, it just makes so much sense for, you know, the, 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 the organizations to promote them, doesn't it? Yeah. I will say one thing that we have learned, John, and, and, and I'm fully supportive of what you said, and it's great for soccer. Soccer is easier. This is what we've heard from municipalities. Soccer, you just have leagues come in and they rent the fields. So mm -hmm. from a city end, there's no planning tennis you got to actually plan tennis 
And so it, it takes more expertise to actually manage a year-round bubble, but there are operators out there that will do this. And so cities need to get in partnership with, with you know, the private-public partnership so an operator can come in. And there's nothing wrong. The operator makes money, but the city gets more access to healthy um, athletics called year-round tennis. Just, on a, just for clarity, you mentioned the cost of somewhere between a million and $2 million to build a bubble. How many courts under that bubble? Do you, you know, I mean, four to six. Uh, under four a bubble at a million. Yeah, it's a the, the cost varies depending on like do new courts need to be built, all that kind of stuff, Bob. But two million dollars is kind of what the range can be. Which you know, a hockey arena is twenty million dollars. So, mm. so you know, this is not you know at the end of the day, municipality is short of money, but we actually think it's good use of money because those courts can be used from eight in the morning till 11 at night. Have you, have you been able to measure uh, the growth of the sport with a success of somebody like Bianca winning the U S open? Kind of. We're not too sophisticated in that front, John, because so much of tennis is played recreational in parks mm -hmm. and we, we call them ghosts. We don't really know who they are. Okay, like you and I go out and play at a park court. There's no technology around it. We don't know how often you go. So we do an annual tracking study where we ask people and then you extrapolate it to the, the general population. And the big stat that is the game changer for us, and I'm going to generalize the numbers. If you go back over a decade ago, there were about 50,000 kids that played frequently in the summer. I think that's like six times in the summer. The most recent study said it was a quarter of a million. Now, mm -hmm. I'd like us to take credit for that, but I'm sorry. Like, we're too small to actually have driven all of that growth. I think it's the inspiration that these Canadian players have created, uh, whether it's Milos or Jeannie or Bianca or Felix or Dennis or now Layla. It's been a wave. And I think it's been the number one reason why there's more kids picking up a racket. And they're not all thinking they're going to become dentists, but they're picking up. It's a good game. And we're seeing benefits now in that we've been lucky that our sport is kind of COVID friendly, you know, and, and you hate to say that, mm -hmm. but it has built in social distancing like golf. So no doubt tennis has been one of the beneficiaries of COVID in the limited ability to go out and get some exercise. Like I saw some data the other day that was for the North America. It was all U.S. Canada. It's going to be dominated by U.S. obviously. But it actually said that kids' tennis grew by 30% during COVID. It was the mm. fastest growing segment of any sport was kids' tennis. Because those kids needed something to do and they couldn't play soccer and they couldn't do other things. Our hope is that it's now in their kind of their their options list. They're not all going to stay in tennis, but at least they've tested it and tasted it. And hopefully it stays in their wheel. Adult tennis grew like by 4%, which is a great number. And, and golf grew, but not much else grew other than like jogging and bicycling and, and stationary bikes. Not much else mm -hmm. grew, but you couldn't do it. One of the dilemmas that the sport has faced, and you mentioned golf, and golf and tennis are intertwined in this way. Generally speaking, you, ha you had to be, or maybe in many cases still have to be, a person of some means in order to participate. 
Um, there is certainly movement in the golf world to try and take the sport to the inner city, as they like to say in America, through the first tee program and through other programs. Um, and I don't doubt that you have programs to introduce the sport in schools and elsewhere. The question then becomes, how many of those kids can wind up in a U.S. Open final if they are playing on the courts um, you know, down the street? Even yeah. if you put a bubble in there, the, the reality becomes the privileged have access to better facilities, coaching, uh, better equipment, tennis balls, you know, that, that aren't worn down like, you know, um, to just the rubber. How do you deal with that inequity? Yeah, no, it's a fair point, Bob. And, and you know, I could probably try to fully defend it. But there is some holes in my argument. I will say, however, that, you know, from a stat end, about two thirds of people who play tennis play in free park courts. Mm -hmm. We kind of define our sport by those private clubs, but they are, they are kind of a very small percentage of tennis. Now, where you're right is if you want to play year round, you have to access indoor courts. If you just want to play in the summer, it's pretty free. All you need is a racket and balls and someone to play with because you can go on your local court. So anyone can play it. But if you want to get serious, you're right. You've got to go into those indoor courts. So a couple things come to mind. One, this is partly why we like this covered courts program because we're targeting park courts with bubbles. And one of the things we're doing, Bob, is we're making sure that one of the conditions for some grant funding is they have a no kid left behind program. Now we're going to let every center kind of define what that is, but like we gave some grant funding to a new center in Halifax and they're now busing kids in for free tennis. So we, mm. what we're kind of saying for all these new, new facilities that are bubbles, we really want you to have a no kid left behind program. And we're in discussions with our friends at Canadian tire who have that, phenomenal program called jumpstart that canadian tire has said to us once you've got approval for these new facilities like the one in ancaster that's going to be announced later this fall canadian tire jumpstart will go talk to ancaster about what funding they can give to actually provide more accessible programming so these are all things adding up mm -hmm. the issue we face is like we're not going to have 20 of these new centers a year like it's going to be a slow build but it's mm -hmm. least progress no, but it also, it addresses the participation level of the sport. The elite player is still going to have to come through um, an elite system. It probably will be a private club. It will almost definitely have, there will be specific individual and high level coaching from the time they're, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years old, yeah. whenever, whenever they emerge, right? But, but Bob, one of the differences, and, and I, I do agree with you, like there's going to be some kids that are very promising lost along the way. So I'm just going to generalize here. But yeah. when I talk about those 45 tennis development centers, they're across the country. They're in all the major markets that part of the reason we give those centers grant funding is that they can then subsidize the kids, the promising kids, so they don't have to charge them full rate. And many of them are underserved kids because yeah. they're high promising kids. So that's part of the program 
because what you know those academies have to make an er earnings but if we can subsidize some of those kids in a way that they're promising that's one of the things we do with the grant funding is helping helping them subsidize the kids because they can't pay but isn't it isn't michael isn't this where your corporate partners have to come up and your corporate partners and whether it's whether it's your actual uh, merchandise people or whatever uh, or the banks or the telecoms isn't this is where they have to say hey listen we want to support tennis and we want kids with sneakers and tennis rackets and tennis balls and get that as bob talked about the first tee program in golf get rackets in kids hands free yeah no absolutely and we do have a program called little aces the national bank has been funding for over a decade which is that reason alone um so but can we use more in that space absolutely guys like absolutely part of it is just having the delivery system to be able to do it but there's no doubt you know when we had a guy um that used to work with us named bob brett and and sadly bob crap past last year but um you know he used to coach goron and becker and others and he was kind of in, instrumental with louis borfiga out of the gate but he used to tell me and it's not that they're all underserved but he used to say jesus man like you you've got especially in the greater toronto or you've got such diversity of population like just go into the russian community just go into the romanian community whatever you got talent in there because tennis for a lot of those parents is a global sport that they knew in the old country. Right. And, and that's why when you look at the best Canadians, more often than not, they're from Eastern European backgrounds. And you know that's the phenomenal opportunity. I'm a little off underserved, but I'm now in a diversity, but it's one of the advantages mm. we have in the country. And that's why so many of the players, like if you looked at our junior nationals and we'll run them in the next couple of weeks in, in Ontario and Quebec for under 12, 14, 16, and 18, it's just like, it is a, it is a great representation of the diversity of this country. Unbelievable representation. And we're so proud of that because it just says our sport is kind of reflecting what our society looks like. It doesn't reflect the private clubs at all. It doesn't. Uh, Michael Downey is with us, the president and CEO of Tennis Canada. Sit tight for a second, Michael. We're going to take a quick break and come back with uh, more after these messages. Bob McCowan, John Shannon, Michael Downey, the uh, CEO and president of uh, Tennis Canada with us. All right, let's talk about these young players. Um, Before this tournament started, I'd have bet you that the, the conversation that we are having now would have been dominated in, about, uh, in talking about Shapovalov and what he accomplished and, um, and Drescu and what she accomplished. And yet that's not going to be the case. In- instead, we're going to talk about a 19-year-old and I think a 21-year-old who um, won to the final, won to the semifinal. And almost out of nowhere, I know that Felix was uh, seated 12th in this tournament. So for him to get to the semifinal while surprising is not exactly shocking um to you uh leila fernandez was a known entity a player of great talent who was you probably felt was going to achieve something at some point during her career but she expedited all expectations with her performance uh this year um Tell me first about Layla and 
when you encountered her and have you for the last at least couple of three years believed that she was capable of this kind of performance? Yeah, no good questions, uh, Bob. Um, we saw the breakthrough in Layla in kind of two areas. One, she, she won Roland Garros Jr. singles title in 2000 and I think 19. And that was on clay, obviously. And that was a breakthrough moment that the kid actually won the junior title. So that was the first check mark. The second one, she has performed exceedingly well at what was called Fed Cup and now was called Billie Jean King Cup, which is the, the national team competition for on the women's side. Right. It was a tie, I think, in 2020. I might have been 19. Like you lose your years in COVID. Mm -hmm. But she she beat Benchik on clay in Switzerland. And Benchik is the gold medalist. So we said, whoa, she actually beat Benchik uh, in a tie to help Canada move forward. So we saw those two wins as being stellar. Um, if I can talk further about her, what was odd happened? She didn't have a great summer. Like she bombed out in Montreal, but I think we, we need to realize that was her first match ever in the main draw in Montreal in mm -hmm. front of a home crowd. And she opened the event on Monday night. So she was probably a bit of a deer in headlights. And she got, she got beat by a British qualifier who's like 130 in the world. Then she lost in qualifying in Cincinnati. But what she said in the interviews at the U.S. Open, and her dad told me this too when we were talking, she had a great summer from a practice perspective. And the father really believed she was showing the signs in practice. She just, you know, Montreal was an anomaly. You know, it, she was just a deer in headlights in Montreal, hometown and all of that. So they went into the U.S. Open having high aspirations. And I think the other thing that I really haven't uncovered is remember the fellow that was sitting in her player's box. Many people actually thought he was the father and he yeah. was the fitness coach. Right. I think in a new addition in the last three or four months. So I think his work is probably paying off too. And I think, you know, I'll end on this point. I think it just all came together at the U.S. Uh, Open. And what she showed more than anything else was this calmness. Like I read today, she has Rafa's calmness. What a compliment that is. Oh, no kidding. But I think what? she showed that. How intriguing, because um, I had not heard this, that in Montreal, she lost to a British qualifier. And then in New York, winds up uh, doing the same <laughs> at a slightly higher level. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> there is some Wouldn't irony he, in that, I think. Was, was, she always, was she always this poised, Michael? She has poise. Uh, well, you know, I was actually in um, in Czech Republic. I was lucky enough to be there for the Billie Jean King tie. Again, I can't remember. It was, 19, it was probably 19. And she played so well. And she held it together. And I used to say, wow, this, this young lady, because she was probably 17, 18 at the time. I said, she's got ice in her veins. Mm -hmm. So I saw it there. And I think we saw it in New York. Like, just ice in her veins. And a lot of that comes from her father. Like, it's just, he is tough as nails, uh, Orgay. And it, it's obviously coming out in her ability to, to win on court. Do you think she's limited by her size? 
she is relatively tiny in terms of what we expect from tennis players today. I mean, the six foot four male tennis player, the five, eight, five, nine, five, 10 female tennis player is not abnormal anymore. In fact, they're quite normal. She's yeah. tiny. She's what, five, four? He's five, five, but I actually, you know, looked that up because I was interested in that to know. Barty, who's number one in the world, yeah. is five. Hammond really? was five, five. Bianca mm. is only like five, six or five, seven. So, you know, you do have the anomalies where, you know, five, 10, 11, six foot, but I think maybe more in the women's game than the men's game, some of the shorter women have found that they are more fluid on court, they're more mobile, but they still have power. Because I think it's fair to say, when you look at Barty, when you look at Fernandez, when you look at Andrescu, they all have power. Uh, they just don't have height. So I think it may, be, it may be a bigger issue in men's tennis than it is for women's tennis, is my guess. Felix um, became a crowd favorite in uh, New York, much as, um, as Layla did, and um, ran into the ultimate U.S. Open champion. And I, I guess didn't have a great day. No. But, um, and he would probably be the first to acknowledge that. And that happens. But a 12 seed to get through the matches that he got through, perform the way he did. Um, he, I think he and Tennis Canada must be optimistic about um, where he is going. Does he have a ceiling? Um, you're shaking your head for those that are listening and not watching. So you don't think he does. You, no. you think the sky's the limit for him. Yeah, I do. Um, and again, that's just me, but I think a lot of people would say that, um, you know, we, we kind of project players. So you, there, there's a model out there where you look at the last 20 years of history of when players at a certain age got to a certain rank. And for years, he's been what we call a platinum player, meaning he is a top 10 player. Like he was tracking for years on top 10. Remember, Bob, this guy was 14 when he won his first ATP points. Very few players have achieved ATP points at 14 years of age. Yeah. So he's always been looked at very good. If anything, some people have kind of said, why hasn't he got there faster? Because you've had a couple other players like Rublev and others, Sissy Pass, who are slightly older than him, kind of get to a higher rank. But I think Felix is, is not necessarily a slow build, but he's a consistent build. And I think what has may have happened here is Felix made a pretty significant decision at the end of last year. Like he was, his head coach was one of our coaches, a guy named Guillaume Marx, and he'd been with them for seven years. And Guillaume Marx shared the role with a, a, an independent coach called Freddie Fontaine, but we managed the whole thing. And Felix made a decision with Guillaume last Christmas that they should part companies, that maybe Felix needed a new voice in his camp. And what Felix did is he kept Freddie Fontaine, who would still travel with him 30, 40 weeks. But as you guys know, he hired Tony Nadell sure. because he got to know Uncle Tony at his Nadell Academy. And I think what is happening here, and it's just a guess, but I think it's an educated guess is it takes a while for the words of Tony Dedell to make a difference. And Tony wasn't at Wimbledon 
So he would have been providing some guidance by phone or Zoom. Now, Felix did well at Wimbledon. He got to the quarterfinal. That's the most furthest he's ever gone in a Grand Slam. He didn't do well in Toronto. He was just, he lost in the first round. Yeah. Again, I think kind of playing at home and the pressure. But I think at the U.S. Open, I, I think Tony Nadell made a difference. And it might have been a made a difference in some aspects of his game. Not, you know, I'm not going to try to tell you what those were. But I also think it was in his calmness, how to handle the moment. And I think we saw the benefits of Tony Nadell coming to, coming to the forefront in the U.S. Open. And I think you're right. Like, he didn't have a great match against Medvedev. You know, he should have won the second set. It kind of fell apart. And then, you know, the third set wasn't great. Yeah. But he made the semifinals. So he made the quarters in the Wimbledon, the semifinals in the U.S. Open. He's now 11 in the world. He is going to be looking towards Australia and saying, I want to make the quarters and semis at least. Yeah, the interesting thing, losing uh, up 5-3 in that second set, uh, that was uh, that was the watershed moment, losing those four straight. Yeah, the interesting thing, Michael, you talk you talked about it with with uh, Layla. You talked about it with Felix. We've seen it with Jeannie and maybe some others. Do we put too much pressure on our own? Do we put uh, too much pressure on these guys at times when they play, particularly in Canada? I think you're probably. I don't think we put it on them. I think they put it on themselves, and they've just got to learn to handle that. Because you know, I, I will say. We give them, we try to put them on the first session that they want. So Dennis wanted to play Wednesday night. We put him into Wednesday night. Dennis wanted a bunch of tickets for his friends. We got him tickets. Like those are the things we should do. But I think mm -hmm. they just got to learn the moment. Like in the case of Dennis, we got to remember, he hasn't played at home since 2018. That was the last time the men were in Toronto. They got That's delayed right. Right. So it's been three years since he played at home. So he comes into Toronto, coming from a great Wimbledon. He probably thought he was mentally ready until he walked out in the court. He goes, whoa, I got 40 friends here. I got, I got a young American who's got no pressure on him. And he just didn't bring his A game. And I can guarantee you he will debrief on that. And Felix will do the same in Layla. And I think one of the things, and I said this in another interview, is even though New York is a different level of pressure, it's not home. Right. It's not home. All right. Yeah. More pressure on those American players because they didn't have anybody in the quarterfinals. But the Canadians are kind of, it's it's a home away from home because it's the same time zone. They grew up watching it, but it's not Montreal or Toronto. Right. Uh, before we let you go, I love the fact that uh, here we are talking about Fernandez and Ali Asim, and um, maybe not for the first time, but we haven't talked about them very often. Uh, I'm intrigued. Who's next? Have you got a couple of other names you can throw at us that we can kind of maybe a year or two from now reflect back on and say, uh, hey, Michael told us about them? Yeah, there's. I won't give you one specific name because I don't think it's fair, but I've got, I don't have, there, there's about five young women that are in Montreal right now, and they're all really doing well. And they're in the junior circuit. And I think it's fair to say one or two of them could break away. Like, but it's a little early to tell, but there's a lot of talent in those young women. And we also have a couple NCAA players on the men's side who are very, very good. You know, Liam Draxel is one of them. 
who was like a one of the top singles players, and I think it was Texas this year. I'm, I'm guessing on the university. Now he's going to turn pro, and you know we believe in him. So again, different different ends, but you know there are kids coming up, but they can surprise you too, Bob. That's the problem. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> you think you got a 17 year old is going to be the one, but it's really the 16 year old that just catapults, and um, you know like I. I think we're all just sitting here saying we knew Layla was good. Did we really think she beat two grand slam champions, two former number ones in three consecutive matches. And the other player she beat was on an 11 game winning streak after winning Chicago. Like, Whoa, but she's 28 in the world today. And yep. there's only one woman ahead of her who's younger. And that's Coco um, Goff from the States. Amazing. Yeah. Heady times, Michael. Heady times. If, Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity. It's great to see both of you, and you both look good. And you both well, look God good. bless you. You're lying like crazy, but we, we love you for it. Than and, me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the um, president and CEO of Tennis Canada, our good friend Michael Downey. We'll uh, talk again soon, Michael. All the best to you. Bye. Back after these messages. Oh, and Shannon back with you. Um, and I sincerely want to thank Michael Downey, who is, um, I hope you, uh, the audience enjoyed the conversation. If you haven't heard Michael before, oh. um, he's not just a talker. He's, um, he gives you substance. And we you always know enjoy what, having him he, he, he did a hell of a job in England too, Bob, with the launch. He sure did. He, he did a hell of a job in rebuilding that. And, and, on, and the fact that he came home and came back to, his roots after Stacy went to WTA. And by the way, Stacy Allister doesn't get enough credit for the growth of tennis in this country and no, the does. growth You're of right. women's tennis. You know, she was that lady that was on the dais when they uh, when they when they gave away the awards on Saturday to uh, to Emma and Layla. Stacy Allister's done a marvelous job, and so has Michael Downey. There, we, we Canada has contributed a lot to to tennis around the world, and those two people deserve a ton of credit. The basketball talk uh, tomorrow. Uh, another one of our pals uh, from uh, a long, long time ago, uh, Glenn Grunwald, the um, <laughs> former general manager, the Toronto Raptors, the Indiana Pacers. No, the New York Knicks. New York Knicks, for sure, yeah. And um, that he was the, I don't know, the title's head of Canada basketball. Yeah. Um, well, he, was, plus he, he did play for Bobby Knight. Come on, he did play for Bobby Knight. Well, yes. At Indiana. That was long before we know him, and he did survive that. That, although I'm sure with many bruises and scars, um, the scars almost all emotional, I would imagine. But uh, oh, in any event, our friend Grunwald, oh, he was also the AD at uh, McMaster, yes, for a number of years, um, has stepped down from his post. Although he will continue with Canada basketball in a consultant. Um, role or something. What does that mean? Free lunch? I believe that's what consultants get. They get a check and they get free lunch. Good. Good. Um, anyway, Grunwald announced in the last uh, week, 10 days, his decision to essentially retire. And uh, we'll talk to him about the program. Um, it is a program that is, be is building and is being built. Nick Nurse has signed on as the head coach for an extended period of time. But it isn't where tennis is no. in, uh, in, in the international scene as yet. But we'll talk about that and um, Grunwald's decisions and his future. Uh, that's all coming up tomorrow for John Shannon, Bob McCowan. 
Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>